All right, let's bow for prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for giving us a, a very pretty morning. Thank you that we simply had the strength to get up out of bed today to serve you and to go about our um, necessary tasks for the day. You are so good to us, and we are thankful. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, Lord, for uh, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, for the forgiveness of our sin, the gift of eternal life, in the sense of your presence through the Holy Spirit in us today, guiding us and directing us. And as we study scripture today, we ask that the Spirit will apply that scripture to our hearts, uh, that we might uh, please you and honor you in all that we do and say. We thank you for your precious word. It is indeed precious to us and uh, I pray, Father, that we'll be faithful students of the word uh, every day of the week. So, Father, bless us now. Thank you for all who have come in today. I pray uh, your blessings upon each one with health and strength. And we miss some who are unable to join us today, but hope that they'll be back next week. So we love you and adore you, and we are prepared to study your word and look forward to what we're going to learn in these next few minutes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, let's look at the first eight verses of Luke 18, and here's what we find. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice and that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? All right, so let's look at these uh, verses together. This uh, persistent widow, he is speaking here, it says in verse 1, to his disciples. This is directed at them. No doubt others are listening, but... He is wanting to teach a lesson to his disciples about persistence in prayer and not giving up. And he also wants to teach a lesson to us about the heart of God, which I think is the central message uh, of, of the parable. We have here a, a judge who is godless, uh, openly admits it, doesn't try to pretend to be something that he isn't. And he also cared very little for people. Um, now, in those days, this judge would have been appointed to his position. He is not an elected official. People then didn't know anything in the world about elections. So um, he would have been appointed to his position. And the way this judge looked at it, he didn't need to worry about pleasing people because it didn't matter to him what they thought. Well, there is a widow in the story, in the parable, who has been mistreated in some way. Now, the text is not specific about what happened, in what way she was mistreated. But we do know historically that widows in the first century uh, were very vulnerable, um, often poor, little resources, sometimes with no family to help. Um, likely unemployable, so to speak, no job, no help, no justice, uh, very vulnerable, no social ministry structure that would have necessarily rescued her from her situation, although not trying to give a picture of first century Judaism not having um, a benevolence ministry of, uh, of sorts. That would not have been the name of it, but that's what it was. But at the same time, um, a lot of widows in Israel, and so something had happened to this lady where she felt that she had been done an injustice. Most likely, it centered around 
her money or possessions that in all probability someone simply called the adversary had stolen from her or cheated her or in some way caused her to probably have very, very, very little uh, resources. And so she is asking the judge for justice against her adversary. Now, it would seem like a pretty simple thing to decide, but the judge, well, I guess in a sense, does decide against her. He refuses to help her in her situation. Now, the Without the specifics of what happened, there is still an obvious implication here that Jesus agrees with her and believes that she has been done an injustice. She has been cheated. Uh, That's very obvious from um, the context of of the parable. What we find about this lady is that she didn't get a negative ruling from the judge one time and say, oh, well, there's nothing I can do, and simply go home. Uh, She persisted in going back to the judge over and over again, hearing the same thing over and over again. But finally, after whatever period of time, the judge finally grants her justice. And it would appear that she simply wore him down with her continued visits. Also, to me, Sounds like the judge is a little bit afraid because he says someday she might come and attack me. So perhaps he was concerned that she might get um, uh, violent. I, I don't, I don't know for certain, but it sure does seem like he had, he had some concerns and, and some worries. So he grants her justice. Now, what's the point of the parable? Well, certainly the point of the parable is that we should persist in prayer and not give up. Uh, So if you are praying about something uh, and you've been praying it for a while and nothing has happened, this parable would say, Jesus would say to you, don't stop praying. If you know that what you're praying for or about is right and just, then don't give up. Persist in prayer. But there is another message in this text, and that is about the heart of God himself. It's not that we should keep on praying in order to wear God down by our prayers. You know, that's uh, God is not going to be worn down by your prayers or anything else. So that's not the objective. Just wear God out, and he'll finally say, oh, goodness, is this person never going to leave me alone? I'll do what they ask. We we know that would be ridiculous. That's not the picture of God. But what we have here is compare and contrast. Compare and contrast. And he says, if a godless judge will simply will finally respond to a persistent widow, then how much more will a loving God respond? To your prayers. So that's what he's, that's a picture. You've got a godless judge and he finally responds. Well, what will a loving God do? Well, a loving God will respond to the prayers of his children. God will answer. And then he asks a final question in this particular uh, passage, this parable. And he says, will, what will God find when he returns? Faith or godlessness? So that, that's a question that he poses for his listeners. And so we say, what will Christ find when he returns? Will he find faith on the earth? Hopefully in his people. Absolutely. Will he find godlessness? Absolutely. And when Jesus returns, that's it. There's no more Second chance, third chance, fourth chance, that's it. And so what will God find? Now, I can't be responsible for what you will do, but I can be responsible for my heart, and you're responsible for yours. So what do you do with this? Number one, persist in prayer. Number two, uh, trust God because he has a loving heart. He loves you. He will answer your prayers. Now, remember, 
Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is wait. I'm going to answer your prayer, but not yet. So persist in prayer. Keep on praying and don't give up. But I also love the picture of the heart of God, that he is a loving God, that he hears and he responds. And also know, as surely at this point in life, all of us have learned, when God says no to our request, we have come to understand, finally, God God has spoken and God said no. Then remember, that's not punishment. That simply God has something better that you cannot even begin to imagine that he intends to do. The prayers are not wasted. They have brought you into a closer relationship with God, and he is going to answer your prayer in a way that will be better than the answer you were looking for in your prayer request. An example of that would be the Christian who is ill and prays for healing, and God says no. Well, is that punishment? It's not punishment. It is that God is intending to bring this believer home to be with him, where indeed we will be healed. The ultimate healing. So I guess I've said before, and I'll stick by it, for the believer, God always heals. He either heals here, you get well from whatever it is, or he heals there in the presence, in his presence. One way or the other, we're going to experience healing. And there's something in us today that says, I'm excited about that ultimate healing. Not saying that we're looking to gather up, a, a, you know, that we're packing our bags and saying, let's go today. Most of us want to live a little longer. But we are saying when that day comes, what a glorious day it will be. Now, we're going to go to verse 9 through 14, a Pharisee and a tax collector. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Most of us would look at that title and say, well, there's two fine folks. I don't like the Pharisees and I don't like the tax collectors. Well, let's see what God does with that. What does Jesus have to say about these two individuals? So let's look at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, there's a picture for you. Jesus told this parable. So in the audience, Listening in are not just the disciples of Jesus, but there, there are those there who are self-righteous, arrogant, look down on other people in their self-righteousness, and Jesus has a story for them. Let's hope they listen. Verse 10. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, if you're listening to this story and you're not anti-Pharisee, you're probably thinking, well, that there's something wrong with this picture. We would expect a Pharisee to be in the temple praying. We would not expect a tax collector to be in the temple praying. Not at all. So where's Jesus going with this story? Here we go. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. There's nothing wrong so far. Stand by himself, praying. Okay. But here's what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector as he no doubt cast his eyes over on this obvious sinner. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Well, quite a prayer that is. And most of us are immediately in disdain for such arrogance. And hopefully 
there's never that attitude in our hearts of looking down on the sin of someone else while ignoring our own sin. But in verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to the, to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now at this point in the story, in the context of the day, most of Jesus' listeners would have said, They would not have expected those words to come out of the mouth of a tax collector. That wouldn't have expected the tax collector to be at the temple. They would not expect him to be praying, and they would not expect these words of abject humility, repentance, and confession to come from the mouth of a tax collector. But then Jesus says, verse 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now, at that point, some are looking at each other and saying, there's no way that a tax collector can be justified before God. Oh, but my friends, there is, unless you are one who believes God only forgives certain sins and not all sins. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Good lesson for us to remember. So now let's let's get around, gather up around, and think about this little short passage. He's telling it this time, not specifically to the disciples. Yes, they are listening, and and they record it. Luke records it, having heard it, no doubt, from Peter. And so, but the object or the or, or the, the, the audience that Jesus is speaking to are those there who thought themselves something special. And in this case, it would have been the Pharisees. Now, sometimes we get this picture of all Pharisees being sinful and wicked, horrible people. And that's not true. There are, that's not true. Some Pharisees were godly, godly men. Um, now, what did they do with Jesus? Well, that's that's the crux of the matter. But there were some Pharisees who were arrogant. They hated Jesus. And, and to them, Jesus is speaking because of their arrogance, their condescending attitude, and, and no doubt their opposition to him. So in front of others, this... Pharisee, out loud, holds himself up. He's cocky. He's boastful. There's no repentance. In his eyes, there's no need for repentance because he hadn't done anything to repent of. And he compares himself to sinners and said, don't I look good? You know, you can, you, you don't have to look far to find somebody that you could say, well, compared to him or compared to her, I look pretty good. Of course. But is that the point of salvation? You look better than somebody else? Nope. Because we're all sinners. Every cotton-picking one of us, every one of us are sinners in need of a Savior. So this boastful, cocky Pharisee, Praise a prayer that was no more a prayer than a man in the moon. Uh, he's making a speech. And if God's listening, good, but I just want everybody around me to know I'm pretty special. How do you feel about cocky folks? You, you adore them? <laughs> you want to be around them? Want to have them over for dinner? Uh, want to go to the ball game with them? Especially if they're cocky and pulling for the team that your team's playing, you know, if they're, if they're pulling for the wrong team. Well, nobody likes arrogant, cocky people. Uh, even the arrogant, cocky man would say, I don't like arrogant, cocky people because he doesn't see himself that way. He's looking at others. Well, then there's the tax collector. Um, wow. 
probably lonely, definitely an outcast in Jewish society, probably wealthy, but separated from God, one who has sold his soul to the Romans as a tax collector. Um, I think we've talked before about how this worked. Uh, The tax collector was employed by the Romans, which for the Jew would be a huge problem to, to work for the hated Romans. But he, he's desirous of being rich, so he's willing to sell his soul. And there was a a set tax rate for the people, just like there is now. And the tax collector then could say to, let me see who I see on the screen here. I see Paul Dyke on the screen. So, so Paul, the tax collector, could say to you, Paul, your tax rate is $1,000, so you owe me $1,500. And and Paul, you could say, well, wait a minute, you just said my tax is $1,000, but you're asking me to pay $1,500. Well, yes, he is, because the $500 is going to go to him, and he'll pass the $1,000 on to the Romans. And basically, the tax collector could could do whatever he wanted to do. He would be guarded by Roman soldiers, and he could extort money from you at whatever level he wanted to. And if he looked at you and said, you know, I think I can get $1,000 for myself out of this guy because he's got it, then that's what he'd do. And even if you didn't have much, if you were poor, he would still extort whatever he could from you. So, you know, it's no wonder tax collectors were despised. Uh, I mean, who wouldn't in, in that kind of situation? But look at this guy. Tax collectors were shunned in society. So a tax collector had to be happy with his money or he is not going to be happy at all because he's not going to have any friends. The Romans won't be his friend. They despise him. I mean, they look at the, these guys and say, well, you're, you're a traitor to your people. And yeah, I'm glad to guard you so Rome can get its money, but I don't want any personal relationship with you. So to be a tax collector is a, I mean, is, is the money worth that much? I, I, I would think not to any of us, but he, he's been convicted, old fashioned conviction of sin. And it's brought him to the temple where he's not welcome. And, and he's standing over in a corner in humility and also probably out of somewhat out of fear that if he tries to get too far into the temple, somebody's going to know who he is and they're going to throw rocks at him. So, so his head is down. He doesn't even look up to heaven. His head is down. He beats his chest and he prays about as simple a prayer as anyone could pray for repentance. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Wow. So he's recognized his sin and he's pleading with God for forgiveness and mercy. Impl- implied in that is full repentance, meaning I'm walking away from this occupation. Now, we just get a simple prayer, but Jesus commends him. So I can assure you it was not in the heart of this tax collector to pray that prayer and then to go back to work and extort some more money. He's done. He's walking away. He's leaving it behind, and he's asking God for mercy. And, and oh, my goodness, what a, what an incredible situation. So here you've got the contrast between the tax collector and the Pharisee. So Jesus um, draws the conclusion of, of, the, of the story by saying in verse 14, I tell you that this man, tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified before God. Now, friends, in the end, that's that's all that matters. And, and this tax collector, I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I know now I'm dreaming and thinking, but that's nothing wrong with that as long as you stay scriptural. So I'm thinking this guy goes home. Maybe he's married. Um, I'm not saying he lived totally alone, but he goes home. 
And for the first time, maybe ever, he is at peace with God. His heart is at peace with God. And he may be wondering what's going to become of me, but I'm okay. I'm at peace with God. I've been forgiven. And there's nothing like it in all the world. You know that. If you're a saved, you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. You've experienced forgiveness. There, there is, there's nothing like it. And so tonight, this tax collector is going to be able to lay his head on, on his, they probably didn't have pillows, so it probably would have been a, on his cloak r- rolled up. He's going to lay his head on that and he's going to be able to sleep. Heart cleansed and forgiven. That's what forgiveness does. So, so, so Jesus is comparing humility and repentance, confession and repentance to arrogance. And we end the story with disdain for the Pharisee and admiration, as it were, for the tax collector, but the greatest admiration for God himself and his forgiveness. Okay. I love reading about children. So here we are at verse 15, and we're going to talk about little children and Jesus. Um, one of my greatest experiences as a pastor has been the children, uh, getting hugs from children, um, seeing their smiles when they see you. You know what's even more fun than seeing them? On Sunday here is seeing them during the week out there somewhere. So, uh, sometimes children see me at maybe at HEB or Walmart, someplace like that, and their eyes get big. It's like, does he go to the store? <laughs> Doesn't he live at the church? Um, I've never seen him outside of the church. Well, here I am. Yeah. So they're so surprised and they smile and they, they run up and hug you or they may be a little bashful and wave. Um, but I just love being around the children. Now, Jesus loved children too. And it's obvious from the way he speaks of them in several places, including here. But also, I believe more than anything else in all scripture, we can see that Jesus had that warm-hearted smile you know, some of the movies and even some paintings picture Jesus as some um, zombie with a long, drawn face, never smiling. And I don't believe that for a millisecond. There are a lot of parables, a lot of stories of Jesus where it's obvious he's he's getting laughter from those around him. And I'll tell you, when it comes to children, they run away from zombies. <laughs> you know, they run away from them. But to someone with a warmth and a smile, they'll go right to them. They, they love them. And do you remember some of your Sunday school teachers when you were, when you were a little kid? Um, I can remember a couple of them that I thought maybe were more in the zombie class, but I also remember some wonderful men and women who smiled and laughed and loved the Lord and loved children. And it's the same in the first century as it is now. Those children would see Jesus and he would smile and, and they loved him. So here's, here's what happens. Verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Well, of all the gall in China, can you believe that? But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And here's an illustration that he uses with children. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What is he saying? Is he saying um, that, that if you don't come to Christ as a child, it's you can't, it's too late? No, that, of course, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying in the simplicity and childlike faith of one of these little ones, we come to Jesus. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That childlike faith and simplicity is the way we receive Christ or we don't receive him at all. Certainly you're not going to receive him with the arrogance of the Pharisee in the last story. 
and and so we find Jesus ready to bless the children. When you see a, a painting that shows Jesus with children on his lap, I think you can say, "Yep, that probably happened a lot," because they were they were drawn to Jesus and loved his warmth. So people were bringing their babies for Jesus to bless, and the disciples were trying to run them off, uh, but Jesus. Overrule the disciples. He loved children. Kingdom of God belongs to those with childlike faith. So we receive Christ in humility with childlike faith. That's the only way to come. Now we go to verse 18. And what do we have here? We have Jesus and the rich ruler. So let's see what he says. This is a little longer passage. So let's get with it on verse 18. A certain ruler, synagogue ruler, probably a, a scribe, or often called a scribe. Um, well, here's what he asks. Good teacher. Well, how nice. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Whoa, Nelly, there's the question of the ages. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I, we all have to answer that question. So I thought, man, that's a good question to ask. So our ears ought to perk up. What does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Oh, yeah, that's true. But what, what, what do we got here? Who is Jesus? God in the flesh. God in the flesh. So he's not denying being good. He's just trying to help in the understanding of who he is and this this uh, ruler in asking this question probably does not understand who Jesus is. He sees him, yes, as a good teacher, but doesn't yet see him as God in the flesh. So let's go on. Verse 20, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. The illustrative, not exhaustive, but illustrative of the commandments. So here's what the guy says. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Wow, am I impressed. Are you sure? All of them? Every time? Always? Well, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Is this descriptive or proscriptive? Is Jesus giving a description here or is he saying this is what everybody ought to do? No, I think Jesus is not telling all of us, sell everything you got and give it to the poor. But he is addressing the heart. And when the heart is right with Jesus, you will be generous. But back to the text, you lack one thing. You see, Jesus can see right into the heart of this man. Now, if we'd been standing there listening, we would probably have had one of two reactions when we heard what he said. I've done, I've kept all that we would have said. Liar, you're deceived. Or or we would have said, wow, what a righteous man. Probably more the latter is probably what we would have thought. But Jesus sees his heart. And what's wrong with his heart? What's wrong with his heart is that Jesus is able to look at him and see this man, this man treasures his stuff above everything else. He's consumed by his money and his possessions. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, then come and follow me. Now, here's the reaction. Now, understand the gravity of this moment. This man asks a good question, very good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a great question, the question of the ages. And he gets the answer. From Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh. He gets his answer to his question. And what does he do? 
Well, verse 23 says, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle, the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he said these words to people who lived in a culture in which the thinking was, if you are rich, you are extraordinarily blessed by God. You must be doing everything right because God is blessing you with great wealth. That's the context of the day. And so here, he says, in contrast to that, it's hard for a rich person to be in the kingdom of God. And their eyes probably got wide and they probably looked at each other and said, really? Well, those who heard ask the question. So here it is. This is how we know they were thinking, really? Who then can be saved? You get it? If the rich man is, it's hard for him to be saved, then how is it even possible for a poor man like me to be saved? That's what they're thinking. So Jesus replies, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, don't you love Peter? He's going to, he's going to say something and here's what he says. And, and we want this question answered. And so it's going to be answered. We've left, we have all, we have left everything. We've left all we have to follow you. Okay, so here's what Jesus says to that. Truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Wow. This is a good story, a good parable. So here's what Jesus said. Guy comes up. Good teacher. You know what that was? Can you look at the context? What's he, what's he doing here? F L A T T E R Y. Flattery. Good teacher. (laughs) Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Hmm. Well, uh, the question's a good one. It's hard, it's not right, but the question's a good one. And in verse 19, un- just understand there, Jesus is saying that he's God. I'm God in the flesh. And it says, here's what you must do, obedience to the commands of God. Now, think about that. Obedience to the commands of God. Okay, which one of us can do that perfectly? Do I see a hand anywhere? You can raise your hand on the screen. I'll see it if you are able to do that perfectly. I don't see any hands. Yeah. None of us can. We can't. We're all, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when this guy responds and says, oh, I've done that all my life. That's a sad response because it is simply not the truth. So in verse 22 is that acknowledgement where Jesus goes along with him for a minute before the crowd. Oh, really? You, you've done all this perfectly. Well, you still have a problem. Your possessions own you. They're your God. So you got to sell it, give it all away, sell it all, give it all away to the poor, and then come follow me. Wealth is this man's God. Now, here's the tragedy of the moment, how we would love it if we could rejoice, saying the man was convicted, called out to Jesus, said, be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead, he walks away from Jesus for his money. And hold on to his money. You know Does that hurt your heart? 
as far as we can tell, I mean, Jesus is on his way to the cross. So will this rich man ever even see Jesus again? Probably not. So the sadness is here's his opportunity for eternal life and he walks away from it. Now, let me let you in on a little secret. It's no secret. You know it. Uh, I love worship. I love singing. I love praying. I love giving. I love preaching or listening to preaching. If I'm not preaching, I love what we do in worship. But when we offer an invitation, there is joy and there's sadness. You know what the sadness is? Here's the te- look at the text. What's the sadness that happens in an invitation? Someone who knows they need to respond does not respond. And that's the sadness of the invitation. Someone knows I need Jesus, but they walk out the door without him. This is a sad, sad situation. And then Jesus says it's hard for the rich because they can't get past their wealth. I'd be a wonderful rich person. Why don't you try me out? Just watch what I'll do. I'll give and give and give and give and give, and I'll bless people. I'll bless causes. Really? Well, I'm not rich. And I think God may know the truth. Maybe I wouldn't be quite as generous as I think I would be. And so it's hard for the rich. And there's some ironic humor, I think, in verse 25 when he talks about how hard it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. <laughs> yeah, that may have drawn a chuckle or two from the audience. But the point is made. It's, it's as easy for a rich man to be saved as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So Peter speaks up, what about me? And and Jesus' answer to Peter is, follow me regardless because, brother, eternal life awaits you. So I'm confident that this wealthy man long time ago regretted his decision. And there are people today who pass into eternity having heard the truth and rejected it for whatever reason who regret that decision. Don't regret don't end up with regrets but listen to the call of jesus and follow him now in um, verses 31 to 34 jesus is going to once again not for the first time but once again talk about his impending death look at it jesus took the 12 aside and told them this is point blank here it is disciples we're going up to jerusalem And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Well, I guess it's easy for us 2,000 years this side of the resurrection to say, how come they didn't understand that? But they didn't. Now, after the resurrection, and when Jesus taught them for 40 days, then a lot of this fell into place, and the disciples said, how could we have not known? How could we have not known and understood what he was saying? But they didn't. So he, he speaks of his impending death. It's a bold prediction. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead. Plainly, they didn't understand it. And that's most vividly illustrated by the fact that after the crucifixion, when Jesus was in the tomb and they knew he was dead, they were scared to death. And not a one of them, not one single one of them gave one iota of evidence that they expected the resurrection. Not one. Nobody recorded in scripture said, hey, guys, we don't need to be afraid. He'll be back in three days. Not one of them. In spite of the fact that he said it several times. Well, I'm not 
far be it for me to criticize those disciples. Uh, likely I would have been as thick-headed as they were, maybe even worse. So let's look at verses 35 to 43, and we find a great story of a blind beggar and Jesus. Um, how much time do I have? Uh, you got about five more minutes? In a hurry? Going anywhere? Okay. Let's look at verse 35. Of, uh, of chapter 18. As Jesus approached Jericho, so he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's going through Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road. So, by the way, Jericho is below sea level, and so when it says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, well, Jerusalem's always up. That's always the way the Bible speaks about it. It's on the high ground, but Jesus is about to walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. I'll tell you, riding in a bus wore me out, going up, 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 up. I can hardly imagine walking it, but that's what he did. Okay, he's approaching Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, this blind man had heard of him. Because he calls out immediately, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, I'm going to tell you, there's noise all the time around Jesus when he was moving. So why? what's, what's wrong here? This guy is noisy. He has got a loud shout. He is determined that Jesus will hear him and it bothers people around him because he's so loud and they try to get him to stop, stop calling out. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Well, Jesus already knew what he was going to say, but the man needed to verbalize it. So, Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. So what does that mean? It means he placed his faith in Jesus and knew that Jesus could heal him. He asked with the asking of faith. It wasn't like, I know he can't do this, but I'm going to ask anyway. No, he knew he could do it. And that's why he asks, and Jesus heard him, and it says in verse 43, immediately, I always love that word immediately, very important in scripture, immediately, not two weeks later, not uh, after one more uh, treatment at the doctor's office, no, no, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now he went with Jesus praising God. People saw, now as they moved along, there were people who said, who's that guy praising God over there? And somebody said, you don't, you can't believe what happened. He was blind. Jesus gave him his sight. So this story got circulated all over the place as this man praised God. So I love the story, don't you? Near to Jericho, uh, this blind beggar, he had no unemployment insurance. There was no welfare compensation for somebody who was blind. He just had to beg. He couldn't work, so he had to beg. And Jesus, he had heard of Jesus, and when Jesus was coming, he called out for mercy. Rebuked by the disciples, he persisted. Jesus stopped, had the man brought to him, and the rest is history. Jesus did it. Instant healing, and the man followed Jesus, praising God. And the people praised God. And this was an, an impactful moment, a very impactful moment. You ever think about heaven? Uh, sure you do. Um, I, we've talked about this in church on Sundays before, probably in, in, in tune-up also. You know, I have a thousand things I've thought about in heaven. And, and I know, I, I mean, I, I know I read the Bible and I understand that the, the, the main thing there is going to be, uh, the main thing there is going to be, uh, we're going to praise God. We're going to worship God. 
and we're going to, we're going to serve him. I don't know what all that means about serving him, but we're going to serve him. So is there going to be time to do other stuff? <laughs> well, we only have eternity. So, you know, I don't know how to answer that question, but there are a lot of folks I'd love to talk to. And you know, one of the guys that I want to meet, this, this guy's near the top of my list. This, this blind beggar. I'm just intrigued by this, by his faith, by his having heard of Jesus down there in Jericho and by his persistence in calling out, you know, I might even want to say, Hey, how, tell me how it sounded. How loud were you? And let the guy bellow it out, you know, then, okay. Yeah. I, I can understand why that irritated those around you. That's pretty loud. Well, I, you know, is there anything wrong with that kind of thinking? I, I hope not. I, you know, a lot of folks I want to meet in heaven. And so he's one of them. Now I know first person I want to see is Jesus. Uh, and I know you feel the same way, but somewhere in, in the expanse of time, I've got another list and um, this guy's on it. So, well, one of the great things is knowing that I'm going to have eternity to fellowship with you. You know, we're, we are, we're going to reach a point where some of us begin to go and um, others may be a little bit longer and, but, you know, we know, okay. Yep. Separation's painful, but it's only temporary, only temporary. So take heart and understand that the Christian never says goodbye for the last time. All right, let's pray, and then I'll see you next week. And if you want to visit for a moment, we'll hang around, and we can do that. Father, thank you for the glory of this day. Thank you for the glory of Scripture. Uh, Thank you for hearing our cry when we called out to you and said, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Be merciful to me. Thank you for hearing that prayer. Now, Father, I pray that we would be faithful in all things to you today and in this week. You'd bless us as we come together on Sunday and then bless us next Wednesday when once again we meet together for tune up. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Love you. Good to see you. Look forward to seeing you. Next, next Wednesday.